Matthew 6.18. You will recall we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we just finished the Lord's Prayer that this is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And uh, Jesus knocks, uh, hits on a host of different topics. And so we're going to hit on a new one today here concerning fasting. So this is the sermon text, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. I was recently going through the family budget, taking a look at where all of our money is going. You know, the thing about currency is interesting. It always moves. I think that's why they call it currency. Well, anyways, I was looking through my budget and I started to see some purchases that had me uh, confused a little bit. And as I started to put the things together, I realized that all of these purchases were for our pets. <laughs> I couldn't believe how much money we were spending on our pets. Now we have a dog, we have two cats, we have a rat now, used to have more, we have a fish, and a partridge in a pear tree. We've got it all. So my wife and my kids love pets, I'm not a pets guy. When I, when I was a kid, one time I brought home a cat, and I went to tennis practice, and when I come back, my father had already given away the cat. <laughs> so I, I've never quite recovered from the scars of that incident. Thank you for bringing it up. Well, people love their pets, don't they? If you're a pet lover, you love your pet. And, and there's a strange phenomenon that has been occurring, that people who love their pets begin to resemble their pets. It's true. I don't know if you've seen it. So I've taken a couple of pictures of people that resemble their pets. Let's take a look here. Okay, we need those lights off. How do we get those lights off real quick? Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Philip. Everyone <laughs> say thank you to Philip. Hello, Philip. Okay. You can't see this guy, and neither can I. Okay, here we go. A man with his whatever shaggy dog. Next, next slide. A match made in heaven, clearly. A man and his bulldog. Next slide. <laughs> How does this happen? I don't know. That guy used to be a, a, a straight hair. How about this guy? Next guy. Oh, kind of a long face. Isn't that beautiful? That is so, that is so Okay, next slide. <laughs> Explain that, huh? This is my favorite right here. Next slide. <laughs> what is that? together. And I think the dog is giving orders. Now my last slide, I want to do a little test here. If I have true love for my pets, so go ahead and go to the next slide. We don't look alike at all. So obviously that love, we're working on our relationship together, okay? Next slide. Oh, it is adorable. Okay. So what's, what's my point with all this? My point is simply this. What we identify with what we love, we will become. Simple enough, what we identify with, we will become. I remember hearing a Chinese parable 
on a man who wanted to learn to concentrate. So he went to a master and he said, Master, I want to learn how to concentrate. And the master gave him an apple and he says, go into, said, go into this room and meditate on this apple. So the guy went into a room and about an hour passed and an hour and a half passed and he came out and he simply said, Master, I can't do it. I cannot concentrate anymore on this apple. So the master said to the guy, well, what is it that you love? He says, oh, well, I love, my, I love my ox, my oxen. He takes care of my family. Well, go into the room and meditate on your ox. And so he went into the room and shut the door. And one hour passed. And then two hours passed. And then a day passed. A day and a half, two days. And the, ma and the master said, come out. Let me see you. And he said, master, I can't. My horns can't fit through the door. See, what we identify with, what we love, we will become. And so Jesus shares this passage on fasting, of what we are supposed to fast. Notice he says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, but fast in secret, and your Father will reward you. I want to challenge you with this point, that fasting is not a question of food. It's a question of identity. Fasting is a tool that we use to communicate to ourselves and to God who it is we want, and how far we are willing to go to get it. Fasting is going through a door to draw nearer to God. Well, you may say, Carlos, I've never fasted. I, this with, Withdrawing from eating, I've never done that. But I want to challenge you with this truth. The truth is we all fast. Maybe not with food, but we all fast in some way or another. We all fast for someone or something that we want to identify. Fasting for counterfeits only will lead to emptiness, but fasting for the genuine will lead to true feasting. I'll say it again. Fasting for counterfeits will only lead to emptiness, but fasting for the genuine will lead to true feasting. I want to talk about fasting. I want to break that, that, uh, comp, that uh, passage there or my statement into three points. Number one, why do we fast? Because fasting is a way for us to take our eyes off the world. And to fix them on God. That's number one. Number two, fasting is a way to show our hunger for God. And then finally, number three, in fasting, we discover His true, God's true hunger for us. Because fasting for counterfeits will only lead to emptiness. But fasting for the genuine will lead to true peace. Let's look at the first point. Taking our eyes off the world and fixing them on God. Jesus starts this passage, and when you fast. The reason he said that is the audience he was speaking to, these Israelites, they knew about fasting. Throughout the Bible, you can see different examples of different fasts by different people for different purposes. Where they would withhold eating and drinking, either from sunup to sundown, or even through a variety of days, or even eating only certain things. So you have Daniel. Remember the exile in Babylon and his friends that said, we can't defile ourselves with food from the king's table. In other words, we want to keep our identity. And so feed us only vegetables and we guarantee you that, that we will be healthy. See, they wanted to separate. They wanted to be faithful. And so they fasted. How about Esther? Queen Esther, when she heard that her people, the Jews, were going to be annihilated. She was the queen. But she knew that going into the king's presence might cause her death. And so she told the Israelites, and she fasted for three days, praying to God that God would aid her when she came in to see the king. How about King David, who prayed and fasted for repentance? 
after committing adultery with Bathsheba, God said, I'm going to take your son. He's going to die because of your unfaithfulness. And David fasted. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He, he put on no oil or ointments, and he didn't bathe because he was hoping that God would see his cries and have pity on him. And of course, we remember Moses and Jesus who spent 40 days in the desert or on the mountain, not eating or drinking as they were in the presence of God. See, there was only really one required fast that anybody had to do every year. All of those other things were elective fasts. One fast everybody had to do, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which literally means the Day of Cover, the Day of Hiding. And this word Kippur, Kippur is very similar to the word Mercy Seat. You know, in the, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the top on the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And that's supposedly where God dwelt and would give mercy to the people. So on this day of covering, they needed to fast. There were only five rules they needed to do in the day of covenant. Number one, no eating and drinking for a 24-hour period from sundown to sundown, which is not easy. Number two, no bathing or washing. Number three, no anointing themselves with perfumes or lotions. Number four, abstaining from marital relations. And number five, no wearing of leather sandals. Now you've got to scratch your head a little bit going, what, what is going on? What are these five things and why are they doing them? It's quite simply this, that they're crying out to God, we want to return to the garden. We want to return to a peace, a time of peace when we had shalom with you. Think about all these different things, food and water. The way we get our food and water is struggling against the land, isn't it? fighting for our food. There's no evidence that Adam and Eve had to eat in the garden at all. They were immortal. And indeed, all of the problems came when the apple was eaten. And so it's a way of saying, God, we want to go back to the way that things were. How about this? No bathing or washing. See, bathing and washing and putting on cosmetics is because of sweat. But there was no sweat in the garden. There was no having to work hard by the sweat of your brow, toiling with the earth. See, what they're saying is we want to go back from our sinfulness to a place of comfort. Hide our sins that we may have peace with you. About abstaining from marital relations. See, they didn't have to propagate the species. By necessity, they wanted to. All of the problems of the fall came between man and woman, didn't it? So they said we want to go back to the simplicity of life and not the difficulty that occurs between a wife who tries to overthrow her husband and a husband who dominates his wife. And then finally, not wearing leather sandals. Think about that. Why would they not wear leather sandals? Because they never had to worry about the serpent's bite on the heel. But they were free, free from fear of Satan. See, all these cases, they showed, whether it's David, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Yom Kippur, they all show a profound dissatisfaction with the sin of the world. A hatred of this world so much and all the difficulties that they want to take their eyes off the world. In repentance, to not look at themselves, to not look at the sinful situation, but to turn to God. They wanted to mourn. And to show that, they wanted by going without food. Because without food would show a genuine repentance. 
But Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites, because they have a profound satisfaction with the world. See, they're doing what they're doing so they can receive the applause of man. They don't have a dissatisfaction with the world. They have a satisfaction with it. And so they are hypocrites, which literally means actors wearing a face of holiness, but wanting the praise of others. They may be fasting, but it's with their hands. It's not with their hearts. And so the consequence is this. Jesus said they've already received their reward from the feeble, fickle praise of man. See, they're fasting for man and not for God. And they're willing to sacrifice to do so. But there are consequences. Love always has a cost. I heard a very alarming statistic recently from the American Academy of Pediatrics. The hospital a hospitalization of children and teens with eating disorders has risen 119% from 1999 to 2006. It's an epidemic. They had a very interesting test case where they began to understand the, the effects of media and entertainment on people. In the island of Fiji, which is a small island in the South Pacific, they have a concept of beauty which is with plumpness. It's with uh, looking uh, hardy because looking thin and emaciated means you're not uh, prosperous. And so their women and their men, their ideal is a large, prosperous, hardy person. Well, in 1995, they got one television station on the island of Fiji. And lo and behold, as they watched Melrose Place, and Beverly Hills 90210, things began to happen with the women in Fiji. Three years later, when they were surveyed, 74% of them felt that they were too big or fat. And over that month, 15% of them had vomited with the goal of losing weight. See, they were dying to identify with a picture of the world. And they were literally dying because of it. See, there are consequences for who we identify with. They were fasting. But we all leave, we all do fasting, don't we? Some fast, but it's not always food. You're a successful businessman. You work long hours. You sacrifice your health. You sacrifice your family. You sacrifice your dreams in order to get that coveted corner office. And so you give and give and fast. Maybe not with food, but definitely with your heart. Maybe you're that young woman or that teenage girl who has a profound dissatisfaction with life. If only I could look like her, then I would have peace. And so you fast and you mourn in hopes somehow, some way to be transformed into this idol. See, true fasting, genuine fasting, is dissatisfaction with the world. Saying that I need something more and I can't find it here. So are you dissatisfied with the world? Do you mourn it? Are you like David, pleading for your own sin? Like Daniel, separating yourself and saying, I don't want to live like the world anymore. Or Esther praying for deliverance from this world. See, fasting is an outward response to an inward attitude. It's a cry of the soul. And if we are to fast, we must not look in or look down. We must look above. 
We must take our eyes off the world because fasting is not a matter of food. It's a matter of focus. Fasting is a tool, a door that helps us to walk through to be able to look above. The question is, are you willing to walk through that door? So that's my first point. My second point is this, that fasting not only shows our dissatisfaction with the world, it shows our hunger for God. See, we must look up to Him, but also we must have an appetite for Him. So Jesus says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, if we look up to God, we realize and we communicate to Him that I want more. And so we send a message. Think about it. Food equals life, doesn't it? No food, no life. And so to withhold food is essentially to say to God that you are more important than life. That the true bread of life is you. And that I shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. See, there was a time on planet Earth when people who loved Christ feasted with God. Remember the disciples who were with God and they were following around Jesus, God made flesh. And they were always at a party, by the way. Did you notice that? They were always at a party. And it says in Mark 2 that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And so people came to him and they said, why didn't John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, the disciples had the bridegroom, Jesus, in their midst, that they could hold on to him, that they could ask him questions, that he could experience his love. They hungered for Christ, and he satisfied them. But then Christ was gone, dying on the cross, descending to the grave, and then ascending to heaven in the resurrection. And though He is here in His Spirit, and though He is in this, by His Spirit in the hearts of those who believe Him, He's not here in the way that we must now live by sight. We must now see Him by faith. We must now come into His presence through prayer. And so to say to Jesus, Food is life is to say, I trade life for you. I'm willing to give all that I have if you will give me some of you. Now we have to ask the question, why is this the way? Couldn't Jesus have chosen something else? Why specifically related to food? Well, if you'll remember, we identify with what we become. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see a life of sacrifice and fasting. Because when Jesus left his father's throne and came to earth, he divested himself of his glory. He fasted from it. Jesus knew hunger, 40 days and 40 nights being tempted, not eating or drinking. See, Jesus Christ at the end of the day came into the world with one purpose, to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death. And so Jesus himself fasted from glory. He fasted from His body. He fasted from His Father's presence. He fasted from His Father's approval. And finally, ultimately, fasted from life itself. 
going into the tomb. And so Jesus says, if you want to identify me, if you want to know me, so you must go into suffering as well. For if you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, the door will be open. But the door to Jesus is the door of humility and self-denial. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, there are others in the past history who have taken on this challenge. One of my favorite was the Apostle Paul. Paul was a scholar, educated by the best of the rabbis, groomed to take over a position as a teacher of all Israel. Indeed, he was a persecutor of the church. But one day on the road to Damascus, he came into the presence of the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, and everything was changed. And Paul began to preach the gospel. And as a result, he suffered. In his lifetime of preaching the gospel, he was stoned. Three times he was beaten with rods. Five times he was whipped. Thirty-nine times, because forty was supposed to kill a man. He spent a day and a night on the open sea. He had a life of hardship. But why did Paul choose this life? Because he said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and somehow to attain to the resurrection his death. See, Paul knew if I want to know him, I have to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. If we want to draw near, so we must travel that path as well. But perhaps when you hear that, you draw back. Many followed Christ until they heard the cost. You know, I think in America we have co-opted the gospel into something that is a twisted reflection of what it's meant to be. See, in America we want everything. We want comfort, we want contentment, we want security, and a healthy dose of God thrown in there too. He's part of our investment portfolio, if you will. Jesus is responsible for providing everything, yet demanding nothing from us. He's that genie in a bottle, when we rub when we need him, and out he comes. For God would never call upon us to sacrifice our comfort. You see, for many, Jesus isn't the end. He's a means to the end. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would lose his life will find it in me. And when we fast before God, we say, I am willing. I am willing to lay down my life because my hunger is for you. You can only learn this when you give up on the world. And you can only learn this when you make yourself hungry for God. Some of you have heard the story, it's been in the news recently, of Yusef Nadakari, who's an Iranian Christian that people are calling upon to be released. He was a pastor preaching the gospel, and the Muslim faction of Iran did not like him. And so in 2009, they arrested him 
for charges of apostasy from Islam and preaching the gospel. And Yusuf has been in prison since then. Over the time of his incarceration, he used to have access to his family and his two children. And now he's been in solitary confinement. And during that time, they have used various methods to try to convert him back to Islam, transferring him to a mental hospital, and apparently in an attempt to claim he was insane, giving him books written by defenders of Islam, showing him the rope and gallows he was to be hung with, and even arresting his wife and giving her a life sentence in prison. Thankfully, a sentence that has been recently overturned. Yusef said this, a lot of people admire Jesus as a unique model to follow for generations, and a lot of people would like to become like him. Jesus did not come to be admired, but to give us a perfect model to follow. If we want to be like him, we need to take a step of faith, like Peter. When the apostles saw his Lord walking on the furious sea, he asked to come to him on the water. Jesus said, come. Everyone willing to follow the Lord is supposed to have listened in some way to the seemingly imperious command, come, a command which implies an act of faith. The Word of God tells us to expect to suffer hardship and dishonor for the sake of His name. Our Christian confession is not acceptable if we ignore this statement, if we do not manifest the patience of the Lord in our sufferings. Anybody ignoring it will be ashamed in that day. Let us remember that sometimes the leap of faith leads us towards some impasses, just as the Word led the sons of Israel leaving Egypt toward the impasse of the Red Sea. These impasses are between the promise of God and their fulfillments, and they challenge our faith. Believers are to accept these challenges as a part of their spiritual course. We may not be in prison like Yusuf, but fasting is a voluntary, self-imposed exile. An imprisonment in our flesh, where we say we want to be sustained by God and God alone. And so my question for us today is, what do you hunger for? What do you want? And how far are you willing to go? Jesus said, if you take, if you follow me, take up your cross. And if there's not any suffering, not only any self-denial in your heart, not any hunger for Him, we have to ask, is there any Christianity at all? For what you hunger for shows what is your true source of life. But true love has a price. True love costs. Fasting is ceasing from eating food so that we may feast on God. And if we do, we'll experience a new hunger. That those things of the world will grow strangely dim. As we too can say, I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection, in the fellowship of His suffering. See, fasting is not a question of the emotions. It's a question of the will. Fasting for counterfeits will only lead to emptiness, but fasting for the genuine will lead to true feasting. This brings me to my final point, that not only do we discover in fasting the hunger that we have for God, but even better, we discover the hunger that God has for us. See, when we get acquainted with suffering, when we begin to understand suffering, we begin to understand His hunger, His hunger for us in the things that He suffered. 
See, something else becomes awakened in us when we discover God's hunger for us. When we come face to face with our own hunger, we come face to face with His. And it helps us to understand His love for us. I mean, why, when you think about it, would God go to such extremes? I mean, it makes sense for us, doesn't it? We're sinners. We need to pay the price. But here is the one of which there is true holiness. And yet He comes in sacrifice. God, the God of the universe, the Son, the Lord, the Creator of the life, saw that we were far away and was not content that we would be with us. And so filled with longing for us, He entered into the barrier of sin and into the crucible of suffering. God fasted. Jesus agreed to come. There's only one answer why we can understand God's actions, and it's love. It's love. It's love. We can be willing to fast to get God because God has been willing to fast to get us. The beauty of fasting is we come face to face with God's hunger for us and we begin to understand His love. And joy set before Him, enduring the cross, scorning its shame, that He might have His inheritance. It's interesting in Jesus' passage here that He teaches us not only to fast in mourning, but to fast in joy. Because he says to put on oil, anoint yourself, and to put on water. In other words, appear normal, indeed, do the very things that one does when they're preparing for a feast. You see, they're going to a feast, but it's a different one. It's a secret feast in the heart and in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus says in, his, uh, in Psalm 23 that even though we go into the valley of the shadow of death, that He prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And He anoints our head with oil. And our cup overflows. And so in Ecclesiastes, God says, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. For God anoints with the oil of joy. So even when we decide to fast, my friends... Our attitude should also be preparing for the feast. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, if you turn to the end of your Bible, to the end of the story, or the beginning, depending on how you look at it, you see that it's not a fast that's talked about, but it's a feast, a banquet in heaven. And everyone is seated there. God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and His people who have trusted in Him. And so Jesus says, Come and eat. Here in this earth, eat of my flesh and my soul. Come without cost and eat. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because one day as we taste Him in faith, we will also taste Him in His full reality. We may fast here, my friends, but we feast now by faith. So let go of whatever it is that you're fasting. Let go of the trinkets of this world that enslave us to them. And enter through the door of suffering. Because when you do, you will meet Jesus on the other side. And you will discover that the true hunger you have is for Him. And the true hunger that He has is for you. 
I'm going to pray in a second, and then I'm going to talk about instructions. And my challenge for everyone this week is to spend time fasting before God. It may be whatever God is calling you to do. There are challenges in fasting. It may be, God, for 24 hours, I'm not going to eat or drink something. So I'm able to do it physically, and I want to be drawn into your presence. It may just be, uh, I'm not going to eat food. I'm going to go ahead and have a juice fast. It may be I'm only going to eat one meal. Wherever you're at, but the point is to experience discomfort, profound discomfort. That is not against our health or any issues. If you're a nursing mother, things like that, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. What's God calling you to do? And this can just be between you and God. Maybe you want to talk about it with your spouse. If you have a significant friend, maybe that's someone. But otherwise, it's between you and God. Because fasting for counterfeits will only lead to emptiness. But fasting for the genuine God will lead to true feasting. Let us pray. How deep is your love, O oh God, that you hungered for us, and that you condescended to go so low as becoming a man, taking on flesh, and fasting with food, and fasting with glory, fasting with praise, even the praise of your Father, and fasting with death. Lord, help us to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love. And help us to respond in kind, having the courage to walk through the door in suffering, not only in fasting, Lord, but in the giving up of all things, denying ourselves that we might have you. All we ask, Lord, is that you would meet us on the other side and that you would show us the true feast, that we might have the oil of joy even here on this earth as we wait with expectance and longing for you. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.